All right, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 11 this morning. A quick catch up, uh, we have uh, Jesus and his disciples have been going through the, the land and proclaiming this message, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. John the Baptist, who's been sitting in prison, doubting, sends some, uh, some of his followers to do a little detective work to go ask Jesus some questions to find out if he really is the promised Messiah. David covered that last week as we saw John doubting. And as a way to comfort John and help provide the proof that he needs, Jesus gave them a report and said, go back and tell John this. And we read it in verse 5 of chapter 11. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, Lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up, and the poor have good news preached to them. In other words, Jesus is saying, tell them I'm the Messiah. That's the message. It's one thing to claim something like this. It's entirely another thing to to prove it by doing things that only God can do. And that's exactly what Jesus was doing in abundance. So there's absolutely no reason for anybody who witnessed the things that Jesus did not to come to the conclusion that he is the Messiah, and believe his message. Those words, those actions, those things that Jesus did still speak today. Uh, It's it's amazing. The the, the reason we're in this room right now is because these things still speak today. They still validate him today. The works that he did, his resurrection, all of these things. Basically, it just means that when you look at the lives that are transformed, this means the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus happened, that he is alive and that he is in me. There's no other explanation for that. Now, in verse 20, what Jesus is going to do is he's going to call out the people that have witnessed all of these things, should have come to the conclusion that he's the Messiah, but absolutely did not do that. They refused to believe. So Matthew chapter 11, verse 20 says this. Then Jesus began to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works had been done because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For in the mighty, if, the, if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? you will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I tell you that it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. At that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, And no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Now, in case you didn't notice as we read through that, there are a ton of fairly difficult theological implications in this passage. I almost wanted to title this sermon the Sour Patch Sermon because it's going to start out a little sour, and then hopefully by the end it it becomes sweet. We'll see how it goes. Uh, Jesus starts out by denouncing these cities, cities where uh, most of his mighty works had been done. Now, you know, it's interesting because we think about the, the works of Jesus that we read about in the Bible, but in John 21... 25, it says there are many other things that Jesus did, and if every one of them were to be written down, he says the books of the world probably couldn't contain them. 
So, so we only get a glimpse of what he did. And most of the things he did, most of the time that he spent was in this region of Galilee where these three cities were. It kind of formed like a triangle uh, of where Jesus spent most of his time, especially Capernaum. He spent more time there than the, those other two cities, almost as much time as in Jerusalem. So these guys saw most of his miracles. In other words, they had front row seats to the greatest thing that any individual had ever accomplished, ever. So you would expect, if that were the case, that they would be the first in line to, to receive Jesus. It's like, okay, this is the Lord. We, we were, you know, sign us up. Where, 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 do we, where do we sign on the dotted line kind of thing? But, but that's not what happened. Instead, this is all completely lost on them. They, they ignored it or rejected it. Like it just didn't matter. And that's tragic. And so this is why Jesus makes such a startling statement, perhaps even maybe what seems like a harsh statement to us. He says that it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for these well-known cities he mentions than it will be for them. And the cities he mentions are Tyre, Sidon, and Sodom. Uh, the comparison to these well-known cities would not have been lost on the Jewish people. These were, these were pagan cities that were full of evil. You know, this would have been a complete slap to their face when they heard this. You can imagine how offensive it would be for a Jewish person to hear, hey, you know what? It's going to be easier for Sodom on the day of judgment than it will be for you. Can you imagine Jesus saying that to you as a Jewish person? That's like shots fired, right? Like in our, in our time, if we want to really convey evil, we compare somebody to Hitler. That's pretty, pretty normal. It's like that's kind of the, the, the highest level of evil that we get to. In their day, Sodom and Gomorrah was that was that line. That's, and it actually kind of, you know, we still refer to that today, but, but they knew exactly what he was saying here. He's taking the worst of the worst and saying, even they would have repented if they would have seen the things that you guys are seeing. So there's a clear expectation from Jesus that these cities should have repented, and yet there's a clear lack of repentance from all of them. So this kind of begs the question, what is repentance and why is it so important? Repentance is a change of heart that results in a change of behavior. So um, if you can kind of imagine that you're standing between maybe a sin that you love on, on this side and God over here, you, you, would, you would turn from the sin and you would turn towards God. That's what repentance looks like. It's, it's doing a 180. Sometimes people say 360. It's not a 360. That, that means you're still sinning. So 180 is what we're looking for here, just to be clear. I don't know why, but I'm going to take that opportunity because I hear people say, man, I, was my, I did a full 360 in my life one time. And it's like, well, that's... <laughs> know if you should be proud of that but anyway um we're forsaking one thing we're embracing another that that's what we're talking about here now even though what jesus says here probably sounds harsh and, and seems harsh it's actually extremely kind and it's extremely gracious because he's informing them and he's warning them that what they're doing is wrong sometimes we don't know this. It's just the way it is. Um, you can't repent from something that you don't know is wrong. And I couldn't help but think of Nineveh. If you remember the story of Jonah, jo God sent Jonah to, to go and talk to the Ninevites. And it says that they, they didn't know. They didn't know their right hand from their left hand. I did that wrong. I know my right hand from my left hand. But um, they didn't know what was right and what was wrong. And that was their way of saying that. And so God sends Noah, the, the prophet, to go and inform them of this. He, he was a messenger to, to let them know that, that God is not happy with what they're doing, what they're doing is wrong, and that if they don't change, they will be destroyed. That'd be a fun job, wouldn't it, to be an Old Testament prophet? Uh, but the cool thing is the people of Nineveh 
believed God. They repented from, from the least of them to the great, greatest of them. They put on sackcloth and ashes and they repented. That was a symbol of, of like sorrow over your sin when you put on sackcloth and ashes. This was a very uncomfortable material that you would put on and ashes or, you know, it was a way to say we're sorry for our sin. They did this. And, and so God's kindness led them to repentance. It's amazing. But the ironic thing, the funny thing, and it's not funny, haha, but like strange funny, is that Jonah didn't want to go. He didn't want to do this because he knew what could happen. The Jewish people hated these Gentile cities. He did not want to see them repent. So that's why he fled to Tarshish, if you remember the story. And, and so he even says it in verse um, 2 of chapter 4. He prayed to the Lord and he said, O Lord, is this not what I said when I was yet in my country? That's why I made haste and fled to Tarshish. I knew that you were a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. <laughs> That's just, it's remarkable that he would say that, but he does. I knew this was going to happen, you know. I knew they were going to repent because you're such a good God and that's why I went the other way. It's like, do you realize what you're saying? You're saying that out loud, Jonah, we can hear you. It's messed up. But I bring this up for two reasons. One is to, again, drive home the point of how much the Jewish people despise these Gentile nations that Jesus is comparing them to. And two, to point out that God hasn't changed. There's this strange perception about God in the Old Testament that he was, he was this grumpy, mean guy. And now in the New Testament, he's kind and he's nice. That's not, he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. And we see this in the Old Testament. Jonah says, God, you're gracious. You're merciful. You're slow to anger. You're abounding in steadfast love. And you're willing to relent. This is what he was like then. This is what he's like still today. He's not a bloodthirsty tyrant that, you know, is out to get everybody like some people would have you believe. He's incredibly patient with sinners, and I, for one, am so thankful for that. His characteristic of long-suffering, for me, is something I treasure, right? Now, he gives opportunity for people to turn. This is why he sends prophets. This is why Jesus says, woe to you. The problem, of course, is that most people don't want to turn away from what they love, this is exactly what we're seeing in these cities that Jesus is denouncing. They're comfortable with their lives. They like the way things are going, and they don't want anyone or anything getting in the way of that. It's funny that um, Jesus does mention Nineveh again in Matthew chapter 12 and verse 41, where he tells the Jews that even the men of Nineveh will rise up on the day of judgment, and they will condemn you too. It's like you can kind of picture this. The people of Nineveh are going to be standing there like shaking their heads going, we listened to a guy named Jonah who didn't even like us and wanted us to die. You have the Son of God in your midst and you're ignoring him. What's wrong with you people? That's not exactly what's going to happen, but that's kind of what he's indicating here. So back to the point. Once you're confronted with the truth of your actions and find out that what you're doing is wrong, God expects repentance. That means you turn away from wrong, turn toward God and get right. Okay, change of heart that results in a change of course. If a person refuses to turn away from the wrong that they are doing, this is where that word woe comes in that Jesus gives them. Woe to you, he says. This is a warning of coming judgment. Now again, the, the, the warnings of judgment to me are a kindness of God because they give people a chance to repent before judgment comes. And I find it interesting what God uses to draw people to himself. You know, some people don't like this idea of, of you know, woe. They, they're enamored with God's love. Um, you know, if you're a broken person who understands your sin and your depravity and, and you're desperate for help, God's love is probably what will draw you to himself. And this is where the message of grace is so, so refreshing to hear. But if you're a person who is kind of doesn't 
doesn't realize or, or admit their sinfulness, doesn't see that there's anything wrong with them. Uh, this is where the message of God's law it comes in and, and tells you something different. And so, so you have both of these things. For me, I was a woe to you guy. That's what I needed to hear. I, I, I got the message from God that my judgment, my deserved judgment is coming your way, Brent. And the minute I found that out and, and realized it, I, I wanted to, you know, I quickly sought the answer to the question, what must I do to be saved? I couldn't wait to find that out at that point. So God uses both of these things. Okay, so the very first thing we kind of need to see from this passage is that man is responsible, okay? Um, human responsibility is a truth that is taught in God's word. This means that there is no reason whatsoever for anyone not to repent and believe. Romans chapter 1 tells us, that what can be known about God can be plainly seen through what has been made, just through creation alone. I love the way Isaac Newton put this. I mean, if you know Isaac Newton, this guy was brilliant. He said, in the absence of any other proof, the thumb alone would convince me of God's existence. <laughs> Not cool. You just imagine Isaac Newton just staring at his thumb going, yeah, God's real. I mean, think about this, your thumb, the architecture needed to make a thumb. There's no, it's not hard to know God exists. It's not hard to know that we have an intelligent designer that created everything. The world is so complex. Think about all the stuff we see. It is obvious, right? It's almost like creation is screaming at the top of, of its lungs. God is real. In fact, Psalm 19 says that very thing. We read it this morning already. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky proclaims his handiwork. Day to day, they pour out speech. And night to night, they reveal knowledge. There is no speech nor their, where, or where their words and their voice is not heard. It goes out into the, all the earth and to the end of the world. This is what, you know, the evidence is like. The reason that people don't turn is because they don't want to hear it. They're like the, you know how children, when they don't want to hear something, they cover their ears and go, yeah, they'll make noises to block it out. This is what people are doing. They, they remain willfully ignorant because they don't want to deal with the implications of dealing with a God who made us and who is personal, who, who may want, like, to interact with us. So if creation is proclaiming so loudly that God exists, Jesus walking this earth and doing the miracles he did, including his resurrection, it was like turning it up to 11. You, you, you should not be able to miss this. For you not to hear it is just ridiculous. That's kind of what Jesus is saying. No amount of evidence, though, will be enough for some people. Jesus even said that. Do you remember in the story of Lazarus and the rich man? When the rich man said, hey, can you go back and tell my, my family, tell my brothers, I don't want to see them go through what I'm going through? And Jesus said, even if somebody were to come back from the dead, they won't believe. Something that obvious, which is true of what Jesus did, and we still won't believe it. And that's because of the truth found in a passage that's in the Psalms and also in Romans. And it says this, Psalm 14, verse 2, the Lord, this is sad to me when I read this. I almost want to cry when I read it. I know I cry a lot, but it's so tragic. The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man, his creation, to see if there is anyone who understand, who seek after God. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. You have God graciously revealing himself to his creation, screaming it out, and we, and we go, no. And we turn away. What's wrong with us? And this means that God is completely just to judge and condemn every one of us. That's a hard truth, but it's true. So, 
We refuse to see God, but what we're going to find out in this passage is that according to his incredible mercy, he still opens the eyes of some so that they can see him anyway. So this brings us to the second big thing we see in this passage, which is found in verse 25, and it looks like it contradicts human responsibility that we already talked about, and that is the sovereignty of God. Okay, so Jesus has been pronouncing woes of judgment on these cities, um, telling them that, you know, they need to repent and believe. And then he kind of stops for a second and, and kind of has a powwow with, with God. It's kind of a weird transition. But for verse 25, he just says this. At that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father. No one knows the Son except the Father. No one knows the Father except the Son. And anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Jesus thanks and praises God for his sovereignty in all things, including those who get to see and those who remain blinded. Uh, He refers to to the Father as Lord of heaven and earth, which is a statement of, of complete authority and a pronouncement of sovereignty over everything and everyone. And so what we kind of see here is Jesus giving us an example of how we're supposed to trust the Father. So, so he, he's saying, God, you're in control of everything. I, I, I'm pronouncing these judgments, but I'm looking to you and trusting you, knowing that you've got all this under control somehow. Um, we would do well to follow his example. I love that he ends verse 26 by talking about God's gracious will. Jesus sees God being gracious. God is full of grace. That's what Jesus is determining here. And if if Jesus sees it that way, we need to see it that way as well, even if we don't fully understand it. And it's a struggle sometimes to see some of these things and, and put it together. But our God is gracious. So the Bible consistently teaches that man is responsible and without excuse, Uh, for what they do with God, and the Bible consistently teaches that God sovereignly acts according to his gracious will. And if you're like me, my pea brain can't figure that out. You know, that's just a hard thing to to put those two truths together. They don't seem compatible. So this is where we start to do this dance. Okay, well, let me me try to explain this stuff away. I know I just read that, and it says what it says very clearly, but let let me try to skirt around this and make it say something else that makes me feel comfortable. I'm just gonna just try to challenge you to, Read what's on the page and, and trust it. It says what it says. Is it hard? Yeah. But, but here's what I know to be true. The people in these cities did exactly what they wanted to do, and God rightly holds them accountable for it. That's true. And God does exactly what he wants to do in revealing Jesus to those he wants to. So he chooses, he elects, whatever you want to call it, and he remains perfectly just in doing so. I like Dan Doriani in his commentary on Matthew helped with this a little bit. I like the way he said this. He said, God relates to a world of sinners to whom he owes nothing except judgment. When he conceals his truth, it's not as though he erases a trail from honest hikers who hope to climb God's mountain. Okay, so that's a good way to think of it. I liked that. It's not like God is saying, oh, these guys are trying to find me and he's putting leaves on the trail so they can't. They're not trying to find him. They're not trying to climb God's mountain. He's not hiding that from them like we, you know, that's, that's what we try to think about. So he goes on to say, we shouldn't marvel that Jesus hides his truth from some, but that he reveals it so clearly to so many. That's the thing that should really astonish us. But, but the bottom line is this, our God is kind to a world of sinners who he owes nothing but judgment to. 
And I hope you, you understand that because it changes everything in the way we view God. If God owes revelation and doesn't give it, he isn't just. But if he doesn't owe revelation and gives it anyway, he is gracious. And I hope you guys get that. I know this is heavy. It's possible your head's spinning a bit right now because it's hard to, to, to think about heavy things like this and it can be hard for us to make sense of it. But the good news is that it's not hard for God. And, and he's able to keep track of this stuff. And, and the reason is because in part of something we see in this passage that, that we're taught about God that's it's implicit in the passage and that is this, that God is omniscient. And that's just a, you know, a $5 word for that God knows everything. He knows everything. And that's why he can deal with these things in a way that we can't understand, but he can. So that allows him to maybe hide one thing from, from someone and, and reveal it to somebody else. It, it allows him to, to say things like this. If that would have happened there, they would have repented. I mean, you saw him say those things, right? If this would have happened in those places, they would have done this. See, so this is trippy to think about, right? But God not only knows everything that happens, he knows everything that could happen, depending on the circumstances. I mean, can you imagine that? He knows every possible contingent in human history, and he knows every possible outcome that could be. I mean, again, just think about this. It's like, you know, it makes your head blow. It doesn't make sense. So this means we're dealing with, with something that we can't understand, and it's a little bit above our pay grade. It's a smidge, right? God knows infinitely more than we do. And so when he chooses to reveal or chooses to conceal, that, that, that's kind of in his realm. And, and he doesn't invite us to that meeting. <laughs> you know, I kind of wish he did, but we don't get to sit on that. We don't know the mind of God, and we also don't know his timetable. Again, just trying to imagine a God who's outside of time, who's figuring all these things out while we're locked in time. He might choose to conceal something now that on somebody's deathbed he chooses to reveal. We don't know. So, so you know, getting all twisted out of shape over this stuff isn't wise. He wants us just to trust him. Trust him with these things, even if we don't understand them, and also do everything we can to reveal Jesus to everybody that we possibly can reveal him to. That's what we're called to do. So in this example that we're given in this, in this text, it talks about how God knows who the wise are and knows who the children are. He talks about wise and children. I've, I've hidden it from the wise, revealed it to children. So somehow God knows that. From, from the beginning of creation to the, the, la, the last person born, I mean, I can walk in here and I can guess who the wise are and who the simple are or whatever. I don't know. You can, you can try to figure it out. God just knows this stuff. Now, he's not making a contrast between the young and the old or the, the smart and the dumb. That, that's how we might think of it. The wise here refers to those who admit their need for Jesus because, or I'm sorry, refuse to admit their need for Jesus. Big difference. Refuse to admit their need for Jesus because they're self-sufficient, they're unteachable, and, and so they, don't, they won't say they need help. The children here refer to those who are completely dependent, those who um, are teachable and humble and willing to accept they need help, willing to admit that. God knows this about every person. He knows what's in the heart of man. Now, so we see another interesting thing brought up in this passage, and this is um, in regards to God's omniscience and his, his justice, which again is a, a mind blower, but it's just an observation I have to make, and it has to do with degrees of punishment. I don't know if you see this in here, but... Jesus said it's going to be more tolerable on that day for one group than it is for another. How many of you guys have heard that, that, that uh, old statement that every sin is the same in the sight of God? Okay. I don't think the Bible teaches that. 
Um, I've heard it. I've even taught it, unfortunately. Back in the day, I just parroted what I heard, thought this sounds good, and I would say, no, every sin's the same. God doesn't say any sin is different. And then you read your Bible and you go, wait a sec, is that right? Now, in a sense, it's true. Like James 2.10 says that whoever keeps the whole law but fails, you know, in just one is guilty of all. So they're, they're the same in that sense. Thomas Watson said it this way. It's like, how many, how many holes does it take to sink a boat? Just one, you know, that's all it takes. You don't, need, you don't need a bunch of them. And that's how many, you know, it takes one sin to condemn a person. That part is true. But the idea that, that God doesn't feel differently about certain sins or have different consequences for different sins, I don't think you'll find that in the Bible. I, I think you see, even in the Old Testament, when somebody would sin, there were different penalties, right? Some people, death was the, the penalty for what they did. Some people, it was bring a pigeon. You know, there was, there was all kinds of different things that he asked for. Um, some sins are called an abomination. Others aren't. God goes on record to say that he hates certain things. I know he hates all sin, but he goes, no, I hate these. Uh, we get that sense. How about teachers? <laughs> this is one of my favorite verses. He calls us to a stricter judgment. It's like, well, what does that mean? You know, it means he calls me to a stricter judgment. That's terrifying right there. But that's true. He says stuff like it would be better for that person to have a millstone tied around their neck and drop to the bottom of the ocean than to stumble one of these little ones. I mean, that's different than, than other things. So in our passage, Jesus is saying it's going to be more tolerable for those who didn't have as much gospel light as it is for those who stood in front of the bright light of the Son of God and ignored him. They're going to be worse off somehow. And we see this principle laid out in Luke 12, 48. From everyone who has been given much, much will be demanded or expected. It's a biblical truth. You know, people often wonder, and they use this, what about people that have never heard the gospel? Or what about somebody that's in a country where, well, according to this, in God's justice and his omniscience, that person might be treated differently than somebody who stood in front of Jesus, saw all of his works, and, and didn't do anything with it. They might face a less harsh judgment. They'll still be judged. But, but maybe it will be less harsh. So the, the bottom line is this, though. No one will be able to stand before God on Judgment Day and say, this isn't fair. I'm not getting what I deserve. And I think we think that way, right? Nobody's going to be able to say that. Some of us will be able to say this, that this isn't fair. Thank you that I'm not getting what I deserve. Very different, but that will be me. God, this isn't fair. It's not fair that what I deserved went on your son. That's not fair. Thank you. Thank you. You know, that's, that's the unfair part here. Thank you that Jesus took on him what I deserved and suffered and died in my place so that I could be forgiven and have life eternal with you. Wow. I'm glad I don't get what's fair, by the way. I used to say, this isn't fair. Be glad of that. That's, I used to tell my kids that. They're, they're tired of hearing it and they're adults now. But Okay, that's all been pretty heavy stuff. And you're probably looking for a little relief at this point, And you're in luck. You know, it's funny. This verse that exists at the end of this passage is one that we divorce from this context very often where Jesus says, come to me and I'll give you rest. We know that verse. But, but what passage does it, does it come right after? A pretty hard passage a pretty difficult thing. So in verse 28, Jesus gives an invitation, and it's one of the greatest things recorded in Scripture. Come to me, all who, are la who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And I love this because it literally says, come to me, all. Does it not say all there? It does. 
Now, we can have endless debates about why a person comes. Where does the desire come from? Does that mean God revealed something to them? Yeah, but it still says all. So if you have a desire, come. There's nothing stopping you from coming. If, if, you, if you see it and desire it, Jesus says, come. We see a similar uh, language in John's gospel of John 6, verse 37. All that the Father gives to me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out or turn away. That's good news. I love in, in John 7, Jesus on the last day of the feast, the great day, he stood up and he cried, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture says, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. He will receive those who come. If you're thirsty, come and drink. You know, he describes the people that come as those who are tired from labor and burdened down. <laughs> and, and this would have had such meaning to that Jewish crowd because no doubt they had been exhausted by trying to earn favor with God by keeping the law. How much do I have to do before God will be happy with me? How much do I have to do before? We think this way, don't we? Okay, I, I know I've done a lot of this stuff, so maybe if I do enough of this stuff, this is the way they thought. And not only did they have the law of God to contend with, but the Pharisees helped them out by just adding so much more. So even like, I think there were 613, somebody can correct me if I'm wrong, laws given in the Old Testament. Just in regards to the Sabbath alone, the Pharisees added 600 more. Just that one commandment, keep the Sabbath. 600 more, that's almost as many as the original amount of law. Isn't that crazy? You can kind of picture their knees buckling, you know, trying to, Jesus even says, you know, the, the Pharisees tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on people's shoulders. Like, well, thank you for that, you know. I was already feeling burdened that I couldn't keep the law. Oh, here's 600 more on your back. The really sad thing is that none of this helped them earn salvation with God. None of them could fix their problem. And here you have Jesus saying, come to me and I'll give you rest. Rest from what? Well, rest from trying to earn God's favor through your good works. See, Jesus says, I'm willing to give you my righteousness. It is finished. So you can come to me and I'll take care of that and you can rest. You can feel the weight coming off when you hear something like that. You'll do this for me? Yeah, come to me and I'll do it. How about rest from doubting? This, this comes right after John the Baptist. You know, we know he was in, in prison and doubting everything. How many of you guys doubt and struggle? How many of you guys have consequences in your life that you don't understand and you don't know what to do with? Lord, why is this happening? What's going on? I don't understand. And Jesus is saying, come here, come here. Like, I, mean, I picture it like I would, you know, a, a dad with a, a child. Come here, come here, lay over here, put your head on my shoulder. I'll give you rest. I got you. Right. How about rest from trying to understand difficult things like we just talked about today? Stuff like election and predestination. I mean, it's, I see this exhaust people trying to figure it out. And again, this, is, this passage comes here for a reason. Jesus says, come here, come here, come here, you knucklehead. You know, give you some noogies. I'll give you rest. Stop worrying about this stuff. Trust me. Trust my goodness and my love. I am gentle and I'm lowly in heart, he says. You know, I'm good. And we know this to be true and sometimes we just need to remind ourselves. And that comes by just coming to him, spending time at his feet and enjoying him. And I, I find no better place to do that than contemplating the cross and what he did for us there. His love is proven there so, so loudly. He goes on to say, take my yoke upon you and learn from me I am gentle and lowly in heart. You will find rest for your souls for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. The yoke was that wooden instrument that would go between two oxen when they were plowing a field to kind of keep them in unison as they worked. 
but it had become a symbol of a heavy burden to the Jews. As we talked about with the law, they were yoked with this thing. You remember at the, the Council of um, Jerusalem when Paul and Barnabas came back after sharing the gospel with all these Gentiles and they come back to Jerusalem and they say, hey, a bunch of the Jews were saying, well, that's cool that they believed and all, but now they need to be circumcised and there's these laws they have to follow and, and they started going down this road. And it's like, oh, wait a second. You, they were free in Christ and now you want to stick a yoke on them again? And Peter stands up and he says, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on them that neither we or our fathers could even bear? And then he says, but if we believe that we, but we, believe that we will be saved through the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ period. Jesus plus nothing equals everything, right? That's the equation. So this is one of the challenges we face when we preach, just so you know. Uh, when, when you find something in the, in the Bible that tells a Christian how they're supposed to live, the last thing we want to do as pastors is have you come in here already burdened down and say, hey, I got five bricks for your backpack. Come over here. You know, let me load you up before you go out the door and head into your week. That, that's never what we want to do. And I love that Jesus says, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. It doesn't mean there's no work. It doesn't mean there's, there's still, it's light, it's doable, but, but there's still something here. And the difference is the have-tos versus the get-tos. Do you know the difference between those? <laughs> have-to means in order to please God, I have to do these things. Get-to is God is already pleased with me because of Jesus. Now I get to do these things. It's an act of worship. It's an act of joyful obedience. There's a huge difference in those things. You get to, to go to work with your father. You get to be about kingdom work. You get to, you know, the people that ran out to Waltz this morning, you think that was a burden? No, it was a joy. It was, it was an act of worship to their God and to somebody they loved. And this is what the Christian life can be like when we have the yoke of Jesus on us. Okay. Has God revealed himself to you? Has he said to you, come to me? and you can find rest, and have you responded to that? If you haven't, please do today. I beg of you. Woe to you if you don't repent. He's given you every opportunity, and if you've been ignoring his voice, stop it. Come now, please. And, and if you, I love the way Luke's parallel gospel says this. Jesus, at some point during this whole conversation, turns to his disciples, and he said, blessed are the eyes that see what you see. If you've seen this, if God has revealed Jesus to you, you are blessed. That, that's, that should put a spring in your step, right? And what else should it cause you to want to go do? <laughs> Tell everybody else you can. There's a God who loves us and who's given his son for us so that we can have life. And then maybe when we sing the words to that song, it'll kind of take on new life. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost but now I'm found. I was blind, but now I see. Father, thank you so much for hard passages like this that also are so encouraging to know that uh, even though we don't understand things, to know that you have revealed something to us and that we get to see means that you love us. It means that you know everything about us and you still wanted to show us you. So thank you so much that you've done everything. All we brought to this party is our sin and Jesus has taken care of everything else. And we just thank you, Father, that we are forgiven in you and that we have life in you and that we can take this message out into the world and share it with those around us. We pray that we would in Jesus' name. Amen.